0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of Food Radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Pizza Quest. I'm Peter Reinhardt, a man on a never ending search for the perfect pizza. This show is the audio version of the Pizza Talk YouTube series where I engage in interesting conversations with some of the country's greatest pizza makers and other artisans. Thanks for joining me on this quest. Welcome to Pizza Talk. I'm Peter Reinhardt, and I am here today with a very special episode of Pizza Talk, because it's not about pizza, but it's about, in a sense, what underlies all great pizza, which is fermentation. And we are here with the fermentation guru of the of what I'll call the fermento movement, Sandor Katz, sometimes known as Sandor Kraut, if I'm not mistaken. you still go by that, uh, by that old nickname? Yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to be with you yeah. today. It's great to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time because you are the answer man for me when it comes to anything having to do with fermentation. And those of us who make pizza doughs, of course, and dough know that that's a, a small part of the fermentation world. And uh, and your book, The Art of Fermentation, which is your your more recent book, and I think of The Art of Fermentation as uh, sort of the Bible of fermentation. But you wrote an earlier book called Wild Fermentation, which is like maybe almost 20 years ago, 17, 18 years ago, which when it came out was called the Bible of fermentation. So which one's the real Bible here?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I I mean, I really would reject calling either one of them a Bible. (laughs) I mean, you know, one of the things that- um, It's nice when other people say it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine for other people to say it. But, you know, I mean, I would never say it. And I would argue with people because, um, well, I mean, you know, I continue to learn about fermentation. Um, um, You know, I was 30 years old before I started investigating the realm of fermentation. Um, And, um, you know, fermentation is almost an infinite realm of human cultural experience and wisdom. So um, you know, I, I am just constantly learning um about different fermentation processes that I did knew nothing about, or um, you know, new aspects of fermentation processes that I've been working with for uh for, for, for many years. And um, you know, so I, I am fully aware and have tried to really state outright in my books that that they're not comprehensive at all. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're you know, they're my attempt to share some of what I have been able to learn with other people and try to make fermentation more accessible and less intimidating for people but you know I have an ongoing learning curve and um, you know anyone who gets deeply involved whether it's with um, you know um, um, uh, uh, baking and sourdough and and you know learning how to work with you know that aspect of fermentation or you know that's the only not the only aspect of fermentation involved in a pizza whether it's cheese making um, you know whether whether it's you know, curing meats, um, um, you know in every in, in every realm of fermentation, the you know the process will become your teacher. And you know you will keep on learning things, and I would imagine that you know even you with your sort of you know decades and decades of experience um, um, as a baker, uh, you know feel like you develop more nuanced understandings of it as time goes on. So um, I so uh, you know yeah. I'm, I'm I'm happy I'm happy that my my books have been able to sort of demystify things for people and um, you know make this process accessible and not scary for people. But um, you know I, I am fully aware that you know my books are not comprehensive and um yeah. you know that they're imperfect and um and um i'm
1: always learning new things which is part well, of i the, think that that's why they are so popular is that they that they do demystify something that for many people did seem so mysterious and so intimidating and maybe even for some people fearful because the you know they we don't think of uh fermenting red dough is necessarily something that's scary but but when you talk about fermenting you know cabbage and fermenting vegetables and fermenting fruits and fermenting everything else or cheeses or meats uh you know we get into these realms where it seems like there's always these few people that know how to do it and then there's the rest of us who we get to eat it but we don't know how to do it but we want to know how and but we're afraid and we don't know where to start and that's i think you know one of the great services and why your books are working for people is that you you make it accessible you and you give them a a ramp into the superhighway of this huge category of fermentation. I mean, we we spoke uh, a couple of years ago uh, at the same conference, the Fermentation Festival in uh, in Wisconsin. And it was amazing how many different subgroups there were of, uh, of, of speakers from, you know, I was speaking from the bread side. Uh, you were the keynote speaker, so you really got to cover the whole topic. But then there were people... They were doing kimchi. There was people doing sourdough. There were people that were doing uh, beverages. Uh, you name it. There was a, there was a breakout group for everything. So maybe if, if we could, well, let's let's we're going to talk about fermentation. Let's get deep into fermentation in a little bit because we've got uh, two segments today that we'll get have time to explore with. But can you give us a little bit more of the sort of the ramp up for you on how you got into this and how you became so uh, immersed in the world of fermentation?
2: Well, sure. Um, I I mean, I I would say that like the, you know, my interest in fermentation developed in several different stages. And, you know, the first stage would be as a kid growing up in New York City, I loved pickles. Pickles. you know, my, my, my my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern europe and uh, you know the kinds of pickles that i grew up eating are not the vinegary pickles that we find on contemporary supermarket shelves but rather right. you know cucumbers fermented in a brine with garlic and dill and chili and other and and, and other kinds yep. of spices and i didn't know anything about how they were made but i knew that i loved this flavor and that you know, some sweet. of the other pickles that i would sometimes i mean i never met a pickle i didn't like but like i really loved to the lactic acid flavor of the pickles that I grew up In
1: and right in fact, I, I call them barrel pickles and we love to go to the market and be able to just kind of fish for them almost like like you know like bobbing for apples
2: yeah yeah totally totally that that that's the old world way of doing it um uh harder to find these days um, yes um uh pickles out of an open barrel um uh I spent a couple of years in my mid-20s following a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics really places an emphasis on um, the digestive benefit of pickles and other kinds of live fermented foods. And so during this time, I just observed that these pickles that I'd been eating my entire life, whenever I would eat them, I could feel the salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva, and I really began to associate these foods in a very tangible way with getting my digestive juices flowing. And so I started, you know, really seeking out, um, you know, pickles and sauerkraut and uh, other kinds of fermented foods, um, you know, almost as like a health practice. Um, But I still wasn't making them myself. My, my, you know, the the catalyst to begin learning how to ferment myself was that um, in 1993, I moved from New York City to rural Tennessee. And um, among the changes in my life, I took up uh, gardening. And I was such a naive city kid. It had never really occurred to me that in a garden, you know, all of the cabbages would be ready at about the same time all of the radishes would be ready at about the same time so um, you know when i was faced with this reality of uh you know agricultural cycles um you know i, I this this um, uh, like light bulb went off in my head and and you know i realized that you know fermentation had some role in in preservation and i decided we with a beautiful uh, a row of cabbage and i decided to look into how to make sauerkraut i had a vague understanding that sauerkraut was regarded as a strategy for preserving cabbage Savage. And, um, you know, I looked in the joy of cooking. I learned how to make sauerkraut from the joy of cooking. And,
1: um, funny how many still of us learned know. how to cook from that book. That book was so, so foundational. It certainly was my first, you know, cookbook, uh, sort of breakthrough. Yeah. So, um, you know, once I made my first batch of
2: sauerkraut and I couldn't believe how easy it was, it was incredibly delicious. It just made me want to experiment like, oh, yeah. okay, well, that's easy to do with cabbages. Can I do that with radishes? Not, you know, I just started, you know, playing around with fermenting different vegetables. I, I found a little book about making country wine and I made some elderberry wine and some blueberry wine. Uh, I started learning about sourdough and started my first uh, a sourdough starter mm-hmm. um, you, you know it's a, I, I started making yogurt it just sort of opened this this um, you know rabbit hole of fermentation that i had yet yeah. to um, um, come out of um, yeah, it and the you know, whole- it was really just a it was, it was a personal obsession for, um, you know, for some years, and I got a little reputation, um, you know, among my neighbors and friends uh, for being the one who <laughs> always shows up with sauerkraut, hence the nickname <laughs> Sandra Um and,
1: and then I, I got invited to-, to... I'm sorry, I think you referred to yourself at, at one point as, as a fermentation f- fetishist. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when I when I when I published wild fermentation, I was using that. Now, now I prefer to call myself a fermentation revivalist because I like really, what I what 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 I've been doing is you know just sharing these simple ancient um, uh, uh, techniques with people. And, um, you know, just to get back to this idea of like the fear that people have, I mean, I don't think people always had that. I think that that, you know, that developed as um, a manifestation of the war on bacteria. So, you know, we didn't specifically know about bacteria until the 19th century. And, you know, sort of the first investigations into bacteria were, were actually, you know, on behalf of the winemaking industry. That's how, you know, Louis Pasteur was sort of hired to investigate fermentation and began uh, to, you know, identify yeasts and, 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 and bacteria and distinguish between different organisms and, and, and cultivate them in an isolated way. Um, but... Uh, um, You know, but then, you know, the the, the early triumphs of microbiology really involved identifying pathogenic bacteria and then the public uh, imagination, you know, throughout the 20th century, bacteria became associated primarily with, you know, danger and disease and death. And um, you know, so so for many people, the idea of cultivating bacteria in your kitchen seems like a very scary proposition. You know, how do I know that I have good bacteria that are going to, you know, um, um, improve my digestion and, mm-hmm. and make the cabbage safe to eat for a long time, rather than some dangerous pathogen that might, you know, make me sick or even kill somebody. So, you know, people just began to project all of their anxiety about bacteria onto the process of fermentation interesting even though even though fermentation really is ultimately a strategy for safety and none of these foods would have sort of stood the test of time if they were like playing russian roulette like they all are strategies that enhance the safety of them and in fact you know sauerkraut is safer than raw cabbage
1: because why?
2: Well, I mean, we read every year about um, um, uh, uh, food poisoning outbreaks related to rubbish. In the last few weeks, it's been red onions. Uh, You know, one year it was cabbage, one year it was lettuce, one year it was tomatoes. Like, clearly there is a possibility of raw vegetables, you know, being um, um, contaminated by some pathogenic bacteria. Generally, the story is a factory farm uphill, manure washes down over the vegetables um, and ends up in the food supply making people sick. But if you were to take those red onions, you know, chop them up, salt them, get them submerged under of their juices lactic acid bacteria will dominate every single time over the incidental pathogens uh-huh. and as they acidify the environment what's you know what's so elegant and convenient about this strategy for food safety, is that you know the the the, the lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate every time, and as they acidify the environment, they will destroy the pathogens. None of the known pathogens can
1: tolerate an acidic environment. So so basically, if E. Coli is the bad guy, uh, the, in, during the fermentation process, E. Coli is dominated by these other what we'll call the good bacteria, uh, and they essentially wipe them out and make the food safe.
2: Well, I mean, it's more that the lactic acid bacteria, and I try to shy away from calling bacteria good or bad. I don't yeah. really think that we know enough to um, um, categorize them in that way. But the lactic acid bacteria dominate every time. And th- it's not that they kill the salmonella or, or the, the, the coliform bacteria. It's that they produce acids. So they change the environment to uh, something that those other bacteria can't tolerate.
1: Interesting. Okay. Okay, that gives me a, a better picture. So yeah, so I because I always think of it as sort of like the good guys duking it out with the bad guys and 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 the good guys dominate and win. But it's actually because they create, and this is part, I guess, of fermentation that uh, and because a lot of our audience are bread bakers and pizza makers and and so they think of it from the dough side. It's it's really about creating conditions that uh, that eventually result in a certain kind of flavors, but ultimately also uh, in in uh, a cleaner food in in that sense. Well,
2: I mean, everything um, about fermentation is about creating selective environments. And so, um, you know, everything we could possibly eat, every grain of wheat, every cabbage, every soybean, every grape, you know, is populated by elaborate communities of organisms. And, um, you know, what will develop really depends almost entirely on environment. And so, um, you know, for, for instance, in fermenting vegetables, like generally the environmental imperative is to get the vegetables submerged. If you leave a bowl of cabbage loosely shredded in a bowl, it's not going to turn into sauerkraut and molds are going to develop. And We've all seen these molds when we left like half of a cabbage in the drawer in the refrigerator for right. a, a week. You know, it develops this sort of dark um slightly fuzzy mold that you just <laughs> slice off and use the rest of the cabbage. But if you leave a bowl of cabbage, loosely shredded, that will develop on all of the cut surfaces. And in hot, humid weather, it could turn into a like a cloud of mold that could reduce the cabbage to a puddle of slime that bears no resemblance to delicious, crunchy sauerkraut. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's always a matter of creating conditions. I mean, you know, it took me a long time in working with my sourdough and learning how to bake with my sourdough to realize that less is more. That by using a smaller proportion of starter in a larger proportion of fresh water and um, uh, 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 flour, mm-hmm. I get a very different kind of a dough developing. And the reason is that you're lower acidity and really making it possible for the yeast to flourish. Whereas if you just add a large amount of starter to a small amount of fresh material, you'll maintain a high acid environment and it'll be great for the lactic acid bacteria and you'll get an extremely sour loaf of bread. And there are styles of bread like that, but, but, you know, in every realm of fermentation, you're manipulating the environment in order to encourage the growth of certain organisms and simultaneously discourage the
1: growth. So, so I find this fascinating because on the one hand, we're talking about the effect of the fermentation, the the, the bacterial fermentation, the results of that are are acidification, which, which essentially create flavors and also kind of control, you know, the the dominant uh, organisms that are there. But then there's the other side of fermentation that we hear a lot about, which is the health benefits it's not just preserving the food and making it taste better but actually it's supposed to be better for us and and that comes back to bacteria again right because now we're affecting our microbiome or our gut and and we're well, infusing it with, with bacteria that seem to be as good for us internally as they are for the food that we're eating is that right
2: yeah yeah well i mean uh, probiotics and you know the bacteria in the food are one you know, way in which fermentation enhances the health value of food, but it's not the only way. Um, You know, like, okay, if you compare a sourdough loaf of bread to a loaf of bread that's, you know, risen for two hours with a pure yeast starter, you're going to have much higher levels of uh, Minerals in the sourdough loaf because the bacterial fermentation breaks down these chemical uh, uh, bonds that um, uh, called phytate bonds that Mm -hmm. that sort of prevent us from accessing the minerals in the grains. Um, And so, you know, like another like major um, nutritional benefit of fermentation is pre-digestion; it makes nutrients more easily bioavailable. It generates additional B vitamins and in certain cases, K vitamins. It generates these, you know, unique byproducts like, you know, sauerkraut, other fermented vegetables have these compounds called isothiocyanates that are regarded as anti-carcinogenic and they develop as a metabolic byproduct during the fermentation. So, I mean, the probiotics are really important and, you know, I mean, you know, for all of us who grew up in the 20th century, you know, we never heard a, a like a good word about bacteria. Nobody ever suggested that there were benefits to bacteria. But, you know, I think, you know, science and medicine are, are, are you know, really coming to regard, you know, that, that the trillion bacteria each of us is host to are, you know, incredibly important to our, um, um, you know, how our body regulates itself and to all of the systems of our bodies, including our brain chemistry. And so, you know, there's a growing recognition ignition that you know the diminished biodiversity that we all have because of exposure to chemicals and because of our lower fiber diets mm-hmm. is diminishing our health and you know, probiotics as well as prebiotics, which are, um, uh, you know, fibers uh, um, and other kinds of nutrients that take the entire length of our digestion to break down and therefore feed the bacteria of our large intestines, um, um, you know, that, that these can really be enhancements to our, our health. And, and, you know, eating bacteria rich foods can help to you know, restore lost biodiversity and potentially improve digestion, immune function, and, you know, many other aspects of our
1: um, uh, well-being. This opens up like a a whole realm of questions for me. But going back first to the sourdough, one is, so this would explain your your description of what's going on in the sourdough, and especially that breakdown of the phytic acids or the, the the phytics that are preventing us from absorbing the nutrition in it. Would would help to explain why sourdough bread has be started to become again re-realized, revitalized as as a, a healthier way or a better way of of eating bread. Right? Makes it. I essential. mean that
2: that's one aspect. I think another aspect is that bacterial fermentation breaks down gluten. So a well-fermented loaf is just going to have less gluten. I mean, if you have celiac disease, it's not going to make it zero gluten. And you know, from a baker's perspective, like you need some of the gluten to you know give the dough its uh, uh, cohesiveness. Yeah. Um, but but um, you know, from from a health standpoint, with so many people having you know reactions to gluten, you know, it seems like you know the the perfect storm of you know wheat breeding to enhance a uh, 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 gluten and um, um, you know, using pure yeast and leaving out the bacteria that breaks down some of the gluten, you know, have led, you know, and probably the diminished biodiversity in our gut, uh, uh which has diminished many people's ability to, 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 break down gluten on their own, you know, have just created this huge, um, uh, uh broad crisis of, uh, of gluten intolerance and, you know, well-fermented bread just has, less gluten than um, uh, 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 bread that's fermented just by yeast. I mean, in terms of sourdough, I think... Everything is superior about sourdough bread. I mean, it has, you know, it has more flavor complexity. It stays fresh for longer. Um, you know, it has, you know, like, like you know, better nutrition. Um, I, I mean, everything's better about it. Like the only thing is it takes longer and we live in a world where time is money. Um, yep. And it takes more, it takes more experience. It takes more training. It's easier to make bread with a packet of yeast
1: than, than maintaining a store. And, and it's been kind of revolutionary in the bread baking community uh, over the last few years. Uh, in fact, I have a bread symposium that I put on every year at Johnson and Wales, and the catchphrase of the symposium is, is because the, the the subject we we discuss is the future of bread. Because very often you hear comments like "bread is dead," you know, and "bread's the enemy," and all this other stuff. So the the the, the exploration is the future of bread, and the catchphrase is. That the future of bread lies in its past, which means again going back to those earlier fermentation models before commercial yeast came along that made things go a lot faster. So that helps explain that, I think, a lot. Um,
2: well, I, I think a lot of a lot of people just imagine sourdough as some, you know, sort of, you know, um, you know foofy subset of bread but you know until uh, uh, you know some point in the early 20th century like all bread was sourdough bread I mean not, you know not that that was the only technique that people used but sourdough yeah. in the sense of natural leavening by a broader community of organisms. singular yes. microorganisms were invented by Louis Pasteur. Um, you know he's the first person who ever isolated yeast and any other kind of organism. Um, And, um, you know, all traditional fermentations of every kind, not not only of bread, but of beer, of wine, uh, you know, every tradition of fermentation involves mixed communities of organisms, because that's how microorganisms exist, you know, on all the food substrates that we ferment is as these communities that include yeasts, but also include bacteria, and they can work synergistically very well together.
1: Yeah, this is, um, you know, it's exciting, Kat. It's exciting to even think about these ideas. And, and and again, when you connect the dots and you go, so Pasteur was a hero for saving millions and millions of lives because he was able to, through pasteurization, so to speak, that grew out of his work, uh, destroy maybe organisms that were hurting people. And at the same time, the other side of that coin was, was that it, it sent us down a path of, as you say, single single organism fermentations and that, like for instance, raw milk cheese is clearly superior to pasteurized milk cheese, because it, for the same reasons you said, the, the 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 community of organisms creating these more complex flavors, and and ultimately really taking care of their own, taking care of making the food safe, as opposed to what Pasteur was fighting against was making the food that was dangerous. Maybe maybe milk that was laying around that the people were drinking that had been contaminated by the wrong you know the wrong kind of organisms. So let let me just say one.
2: Let me say one thing about that, because, you know, I mean, like Pasteur never applied this process to milk. I mean, he developed this this process for winemaking. You know, it was a way to sort of kill the, you know, indigenous organisms of the of the grape juice and then seed it with this sort of selected uh, 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 one. I mean, you know, historically, milk was not a problem. Milk became a problem as a result of industrialization and more and more people in less and less space, more and more cows, uh, uh, in less and less space. And, and so, once you take cows off of pasture, they cannot possibly stay healthy. And so, you know, it's in the late 19th and early 20th century that you start seeing these big problems with the milk supply. And yeah, pasteurization was a great salvage protocol, but you know, there's nothing intrinsically dangerous about raw milk. If you have, you know, raw milk from cows that have adequate access to to pasture or goats or sheep, you know, it's just, it's not a safety issue at all. And when that milk gets old, it becomes acidic. It's dominated by lactic acid bacteria. It becomes, you know, fermented sour milk. We have a word in English, clabbered milk. That's just because nobody had a refrigerator until the 20th century. That's just milk that sat on the counter for a few days and began to uh, acidify.
1: Well, this is, this, as we say, a huge subject and a fascinating one for me. Let's take a little break here. When we come back, uh, Sander, if you would show us maybe some of the little projects you've got going, some of the various uh, uh, foods that you've been fermenting, maybe we'll talk a little bit about them, maybe give a few tips to our viewers on how they might be able to get into all of this themselves if they're not already doing it. Uh, some of them may be already making kombucha. Everybody who's watching has probably made bread and bread dough, but now we're seeing that that's just the tip of the iceberg of what fermentation is all about. So uh, for those of you who are watching, come back for part two of our conversation with Sandor Kacz uh, or Sandor Kraut, uh, our, the, the, the fermentation master that uh, is opening up kind of a whole world of understanding for us today. We'll see you back on part two with Sandor on Pizza Talk. Stick around for more Pizza Quest after a word from our sponsor. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a new brand identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through our archive of over 16,000 episodes. You know, it's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Pizza Quest with Peter Reinhard is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much Pizza Quest with Peter Reinhardt And food radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. A gift of $5 or $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. We're back with Sandor Katz uh, coming to us from Eastern Tennessee. Uh, so, are you, is that, are you like in a mountain area there,
2: Sandor? Well, I'm actually not in Eastern Tennessee. I'm in oh. Middle Tennessee, Middle so Tennessee, at the geographical center of the state, southeast of Nashville. Oh, um, uh, not really in the mountains. I mean, it's very hilly where I live. Like sometimes people call it the,
1: the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Ah. Okay, so so Tennessee, for a uh, New Yorker, to be uh, transplanted to Tennessee, but you've been there a long time now. You're probably as much a Tennessean as you are uh, a New Yorker.
2: Well, um, you know, sometimes when I go back to New York, people think I have a Southern accent, but nobody <laughs> here would ever mistake
1: me. No, 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 but you don't have a New York accent, <laughs> so that's, you know, that's something. <laughs> it's hard to take, I think, as a guy from Philly, you know, I feel like it's hard to take the East Coast out of anybody, no matter how long you move away from from the East Coast, it's hard to take it out of you. You know, you're still you're still rooted in in the foods of your of where you grew up and the and the culture and the, and even the accents of those areas. So so we've been talking about um, about fermented foods, and I know you've got all sorts of things going. Um, why don't you take us uh, take us through some of those? And I'm sure it'll trigger some more questions.
2: Well, sure. Okay, so I mean, first of all, I have to say that um, I have been having just a bumper crop crop of cucumbers this wow. year, wow. and um, you know, these are the you know the classic uh, garlic dills that uh, that that I grew up with, and uh, I've been eating a lot of them this summer. Um, and then I've also been making the, this like cucumber kimchi. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's also a, a, a pickled cucumber, but, you know, rather than just a salty garlicky brine, you know, that has chili pepper and, uh, ginger and shallots and, uh, a little bit of fish sauce. And so, you know, it's a, you know, slightly more, um, you know, uh, uh complex, uh, uh, stronger flavor.
1: But, let's, uh, but let's, it's still, but it's still a pickle. It's a pickle. So, but let's talk about the uh, the the first one you held up. Uh, it seemed, at least on the screen, that there it was kind of a, a cloudyish brine. Is that anything that? Yeah, sure. is that normal, and is that is that anything to be concerned about?
2: Uh, no, that's inevitable. That's inevitable. Just as, you know, it, I mean, you know, the way I conceptualize it is that as the brine gets denser and denser with microbial life, it just, you know, takes on a, a, a cloudy appearance. Um, so, I mean, you know, in my experience, it's just absolutely normal. Uh, the, so brown,
1: the, brine, the brine always gets cloudy. Okay. But you fill, so you filled the jar up with, with cucumbers, added water, enough water to cover and then salt or salty. Well, okay, so uh, so okay. You'll notice that in addition to cucumbers, you can see
2: grape leaves there. Yeah. So grape leaves uh, have tannins that help um, keep the cucumbers crunchy by inhibiting enzymes that can break down the pectins. And I'm and we've all eaten a mushy pickle um you know uh, you know cucumbers and any vegetables will given enough time you know lose their firmness and yeah. get soft and mushy yeah. and that's that that happens especially fast with um watery summer vegetables like cucumbers or zucchini and so you know a strategy for slowing this down i mean people use, there's chemicals people use also um um but you know i prefer to stay away from that and do it right. sort of you know old world way. So you know at the edges of the clearing where I live, there's just grapevines hanging from trees. And I every time I make pickles, I go out and pick some grapevines, then I go out and pick some dill out of the garden. You know, I take some flowering heads and I take some seeds and I put them both in there. Uh, then I take garlic. I don't even bother peeling the garlic. I just cut it in half and put it in with the peels. I usually, you know, for a jar this size, you know, there's at least a good head of garlic in there. Um, and, then, and then meanwhile, I soak the cucumbers in um, uh, ice water. That also helps maintain crispness. Uh And then before I put each one in, I use a little paring knife and scrape off any residue of the blossom at the blossom end. Every cucumber has a stem end and a blossom Uh and the blossoms have like a greater concentration of these enzymes that can make them soft and mushy so I scrape away any residue of the blossom Uh and then I pack the cucumbers in and then you know uh, just you know roughly calculating a little bit less than half the volume of the jar I'll prepare brine at that you know you want to use as little brine as possible to cover the vegetables so as to not dilute the flavor Um, and so um you know, for this, I probably mixed up like you know, like a a, a liter of brine. Um, you know, I like to work in metric because I'm I'm aiming for a five percent brine. So with a liter of water, that means five percent. Uh, that means fifty grams of salt. Uh, right. You know, it's it's you know, if you if you try to do it in the imperial system, you end up with all these crazy fractions. You
1: know, that is a yeah. paper. You need something uh, like this, a calculator. <laughs> too, but, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and so then I pour the 5% brine over it. And then, you know, you can always adjust the saltiness. If you, I just taste the brine the next day once the salt has absorbed into the cucumbers. And, you know, if it tastes a little too salty, I'll add a little bit of water. If it tastes not salty enough, I could add a little bit of salt. Um, but, you know, that's my basic method. And then, I mean, in the in the heat of the south, I mean, I really just do it for... I leave it out out of the refrigerator for four or five days. Um, you know, I'm looking for visual change. I'm looking for the bright green of a cucumber to turn into this duller olive green color. Uh, and then I taste the brine, and then I just put it in the fridge. Before well, we you're like me, you me like
1: like your pickles good and sour. But but uh, my dad used to like what he called half dills, where where it was yeah. still bright green. But but they were clear they were they were interrupted somewhere in the process where they were still bright green and crisp. But I knew I always thought they tasted too much like a cucumber and not enough like a pickle.
2: Well, I mean, I think that this raises an important point, which is that all ferments exist along a spectrum, and you know, you can ferment them longer, and you know, more fermentation byproducts. In this case, acid will will build up. Um, you know, the same is true of a sourdough loaf. Like, you know, if you you know, the the longer you leave it, the more acidic it, it, it will become. And some people like a really like um, um, you know very acidic loaf. Some people prefer a milder flavor. Same thing with pickles. Some people prefer uh, like a strong sour flavor yeah. some people prefer a milder flavor uh, what I learned with sauerkraut on my on my wild fermentation cross-country book tour yeah. um, you know I, I, I at one point I, I started my tour with all you know all this like two month old sauerkraut everywhere where I went I'd give people taste of sauerkraut and this Austrian woman, You know, her reaction to my two month old sauerkraut was that's pretty good for coleslaw. And like, you know, (laughs) she did not consider it to be strong enough to legitimately be called sauerkraut. Then by the time I got to the West Coast, down to San Diego, up to Seattle, on my way back, I ran out of my mature sauerkraut. But I was always doing little demonstrations. So one day I had to serve people like three day old sauerkraut. And I felt embarrassed because it's not that sour after three days. But so many people said that's the best sauerkraut I ever had in my life. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I thought I didn't like sauerkraut, but that's delicious. And, you know, I would say that there's no virtue in fermenting something for two months if you're going to prefer the flavor of it after three or four days. And I just encourage people to, you know, to taste whatever it is they're fermenting, just taste it at intervals. Uh, yeah. Just so you can get a sense of the evolving flavor and figure out where along that
1: spectrum of possibility you like it. How do you keep your pickles below the waterline so that they don't get that, uh, you know, that that, that mold?
2: Oh, I've got various little um, uh, uh, things like, you know, people are making very clever little, like this is a little glass uh, uh, weight that's uh-huh. right inside of a mason jar. So this is a great uh, uh, tool to do. You know, uh, uh, maybe an old world version of that would be you find a little river stone and use that as as a weight. Um Uh, Oh, here's one. This is this is a different ferment that I'll show you. But, you know, some 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 people are manufacturing this little plastic foldable disk that fits right inside the jar. And, you know, you know, with 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 a lot of processes, you know, this is a this is a technical challenge is holding things down um so you know with vegetables a lot of times with sauerkraut people save an outer leaf of the cabbage and you know use that heavy spine on an outer leaf and 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 use that as like a almost like a spring uh huh. trapped under the shoulders of the jar to hold yeah. everything down sometimes if i have a really like fat uh, uh, um, um, carrot. I'll save the end of a carrot uh, 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 to push things down. So, I mean, there's a million improvisational ways that people can do this, or increasingly there are, you know, clever little gadgets that, that I,
1: do, you, do you leave the jar open to the air, or do you put a lid on it?
2: Well, I usually put a lid on it because I've got all kinds of little flies around my But but, you know, then you have the burden of releasing pressure. So the, the the advantage of leaving things open is that the pressure can relieve itself. Um, the vast majority of fermentations do not require
1: air or oxygen.
2: Um, I mean, in, in fact, if you ask a biologist, what is fermentation, they're going to tell you it's anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen, even though there are a large handful of foods and beverages we describe as fermented that require oxygen. I call these the Oxymoronic ferments. So, you know, these would include vinegar, kombucha, tempe, koji. Um, you know, lots. You know, th- there are processes that are microbial transformations of foods that require oxygen, but the vast majority do not. And the question of whether to cover or not really has more to do with the ability of carbon dioxide that that's produced to uh, escape, hey. um, uh, rather than a necessity for air to get in.
1: So, like even a piece of cheesecloth or a fine mesh to keep the bug out could, could be just as good, as long as yeah, you keep. Sometimes it I'll
2: put a. Sometimes I'll put a lid on loosely, like so I won't tighten it, and that way the pressure can get out. But even a loose lid sitting on top of a jar will generally keep the flies out.
1: I used to make pickles when I lived in Northern California uh, in 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 pretty in like five gallon tubs, you know, and I would put plates to try to hold the water. But every once in a while, I noticed there would be some white would look like a white mold floating to the top uh did that if i skim those out the uh, my my solution's not contaminated is it from those molds yeah. no 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 worry i mean it's more or less inevitable um um
2: so uh, you know the whole idea of getting vegetables submerged is to protect them from oxygen but there's always a surface that's in contact with the oxygen, except in certain very cleverly engineered systems, which are all, you know, relatively um, um, you know, new. And a lot of those systems, I mean, anytime you open it up to look, smell, taste, you're letting the oxygen back in and defeating the purpose of your clever engineering. Right. So, um, like, you, you don't have to worry about it. Um, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I had a hilarious experience um uh, I, I traveled to China uh, uh, four years ago with a Chinese American friend and her mother, who lives in Hong Kong. Um, um, and uh, you know, we were trying to learn about Chinese fermentation, and uh, we visited. We were learning about this amazing um, um, Sichuanese condiment called doubanjiang, um, which I have been making. It's a uh, uh, broad beans fermented with um, chili peppers. Um, Oh. And, um, and and we were, like, visiting the chef of this, like, 500-seat restaurant that that's in the town where the dobanjang is made and features all dobanjang uh, 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 delicacies. And he had a pickle shack behind his restaurant. He wanted to show us his fermenting long beans. And he had all these big, like, you know, 100-liter clay crocs, and, but none of them had labels on them. And so he's opening up all these crocs and looking to see which one has the long beans. And they all have, like... White growth on on top of them. Now, you know, a chef of a giant restaurant in the US, even if they had that, they would not let people videotape that. They they, they don't want people to see the, the phone. But this guy was completely unselfconscious and he was not even skimming it off to remove it. He was mixing it back in, like, you know, in in his view as someone who's been intimately connected to this process for his entire life. It's just like there was just not it was just so inevitable. It was just such a um, part of the process that's utterly harmless. And so. you know these are aerobic life forms that can develop on the surface. There's a yeast called a calm yeast. Sometimes you get a little hairy white mold. They're mm. utterly harmless. I like to skim them off and remove them as best I can. Sometimes yeah. some of it just dissipates into the brine and you can't get all of it. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Definitely don't throw away your pickles because you had a little funky growth. When well, I think that's the most important.
1: Because I remember you uh, the uh, quote that I heard you say, which is that no one, uh, no one has ever been recorded to have gotten. Sick or ill or killed by eating fermented foods or something? Well,
2: I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, people, that's what people hear a lot. I say fermented vegetables. I mean, fermented vegetables have a hundred percent safety record. I mean, definitely in the history of like, um, um, you know, cured meats and cheeses, I mean, you know, there, gotcha. there, there have been problems, yeah. but even, you know, even, I mean, it's only because these foods are, you know, high-protein animal foods are a little bit more intrinsically dangerous than vegetable foods, but, um, but, but, but you know, know yeah. the fermentation is a strategy for safety in, in, in either case, but in the realm of vegetables, there's just no case history anywhere of um, food poisoning. illness.
1: So don't be afraid to eat your pickles because they're not going to hurt you or any of your so show us a couple of other, I think you got a couple other things to show us there. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, sure okay, so this might be interesting to um, um, bread makers this is a batter for dosas or idli so these really? are South, South Indian, uh, a dosa is like a crepe and a idli is a steam bread made uh, in these little forms that you, that, that you steam and this is just basically lentil and rice. Um, So I I use red lentils because they're more easily available for me. And in India, most people would use urad dal, which is a white lentil with a black skin. But, you know, most of these processes are actually very, very flexible. Um, So uh, I soak them, then then I grind them up um, into a batter. Uh, with a little bit of salt. Uh, I leave them, you know, in hot weather, maybe 12 hours. In cool weather, it might be 24 to even 48 hours until it really doubles in size. And then I make crepes out of them. You Usually I make the doses, I make, I love to make them for breakfast. It's like I'll make a little crepe, flip it yeah. over, break an egg on top of it, put a little uh, um, top on, t- on, on the pan um, so the egg cooks. Uh, uh, and then put some sort of a little chutney or pesto or something on it and roll it up and, and have it for breakfast. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different bread concepts uh, uh, around the world. And, um, um, you know, wheat is not the only, um, you know, grain that has uh, yeast and bacteria and right. you know you can do similar kinds of things with you know with rice with millet with all kinds of other um, um uh, grains this is um tempeh oh so i love tempeh,
1: tempeh. But wait before you start on the tempeh i just want to go back to the dosa because like, i love doses too and i'm fascinated that you can make your own doses this way so th- that's like a dosa starter do you use that as a starter or do you make the doses right from that batter
2: no, this is the batter. I mean, there's no tradition of 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 maintaining a starter over time. And
1: how long did it uh, take mean, to get to that point to where it was fermented? A couple of days. I mean, the
2: whole thing. The whole like no no. The whole thing was 24 hours in the summer. Oh, you know, oh okay. In warm weather in the summer. So I I I, I started soaking uh, uh, in the morning. Um, In the afternoon, I took the soaked ingredients and I ground them down into a batter, added a little bit of salt to that, put it in the jar. Um, And then uh, in the morning, I made some doses. So it really just like fermented maybe for like...
1: Nighttime. I don't know why that's happening, but... My, f- my phone just <laughs> has a mind of its own this is the, the zoom world we're in um so, oh, well, so that's cool so now can that also be used as a seed let's say as a, for a sourdough if you want to add it to us to flour and water and use it as a seed to, to start a sourdough culture i mean you could try
2: it i mean i, I I've, I've never i've never done that
1: i mean just uh, thinking about the, i don't know the, i mean it's
2: the I mean, it's, a bacteria. Similar, uh, it's a similar community of organisms so yeah, yeah. yeah i don't see i don't see any um a, a problem right. well that's
1: going on my list yeah. of things to try right away all right now i don't want to forget about that tempeh because that's a that's a mystery food it, it can feed it feeds an entire nation in in uh, we're in indonesia and malaysia but here in the united states it's still kind of a niche food so can you explain a little bit about what, what tempeh is
2: yeah, sure. So I mean, traditionally, tempeh is made from soybeans. And, um, you know, basically, the soybeans are, are uh, uh, soaked. And the, the primary, the first fermentation is the soaking. Lactic acid bacteria develops and that sort of, you know, gives, you know, helps protect the soybeans. Then you um, uh, generally split them to, so that the skins will fall off of them um, and you'll have more surface area. And then you cook them, but only briefly. You cook them for maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, you don't want them to get soft. Um, you don't want them to lose their form. And by the way, I don't usually do this with soybeans. I mean, this one, uh, I think I did black eyed peas and Mm -hmm. black rice, um, so, you know, same idea, like, you know, soak, split or the way I usually split them dry and then soak them, um, then cook them with black eyed peas. I only cook them for like 10 minutes because I don't want them to get to get soft. Then I I mix it with the rice. Um, you don't want things to be too wet because that really encourages, um, you know, bacterial growth and off flavor. So what I do is I cook the rice really dry so it will absorb any surface moisture off of the uh um, uh, um, beans mm-hmm. and then I stir them as they're cooling and I need to get them down to like body temperature. Um, and then I have a little, um, uh, a starter that's easy to buy through the internet, tempeh starter. It's a fungus called rhizopus. Um, and um, so I sprinkle a little bit of the starter on my bean and rice mix and, um, you know, stir it for a couple of minutes to distribute it well. And then um, I, I basically take, uh, um, you know, these 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 plastic bags, which, um, you know, someone I know who had a business was throwing away. And um, <laughs> uh, I, take a, I have a little hat pin uh, uh, and I just make little holes in this because I want to hold most of the humidity inside but allow for uh, um, uh, enough oxygen to support the growth of the fungus um, and then I keep it in a warm environment in uh, it's like 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit so I mean on a hot summer day I can just do it in the ambient yeah. temperature the way they do it in Indonesia and Malaysia yeah. but what I what I've what I've done so I can make it all year round is I I basically took a defunct a commercial refrigerator and uh, drilled some holes in the bottom and took the compressor off of the top. And then uh, I just have an incandescent light bulb at the bottom and a little fixture and a little greenhouse temperature controller that it's plugged into at the top, yeah. you know, with a sensor at the top. So yeah. whenever the temperature gets like below 80 degrees, it turns the light bulb on. Um, and great. so I'm able to I'm able to you know maintain the, the 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 target temperature range and I use that same incubator also to make koji which is uh, this other kind of fungus aspergillus grown on um you know grains or or soybeans and that's the starting point for making sake for making miso for making soy sauce um you know a whole world of 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 foods um I have
1: so another really interesting oh I was going to ask you when you use when you say the word fungal, fungal, so that moves us more into the yeast territory because that's different from lactobacillus bacteria, right? So, so that's another kind of fermentation, a different category of fermentation
2: there are lots of different kinds of fermentation. There's a lot, I mean, fermentation. you know, we were, we use the word fermentation, you know, not necessarily in the way a biologist would use it, but to describe, you know, any kind of microbial transformation of food. And those microbes could be bacteria, they could be yeast, they could be molds. Uh, in many cases, they're combinations of all of them. I mean, you know, uh, soy sauce, this ubiquitous condiment that's in everybody's kitchen involves, you know, um, uh, uh molds, bacteria and
1: yeasts. So, so you're really um, deploying in fermentation you're deploying these various organisms to transform a food from one thing into something else or to preserve yeah, it and yeah. to, and I mean so this was just like a loose uh, you know uh,
2: like a, a loose bowl of beans and rice and now it's become a cohesive thing that I slice, slice. And, and fry. Um, and uh I've been mean, marinated in different things. I mean, I have lots of different ways that I like to cook it. Um, and and not all bacterial fermentations are acidic. I mean, the mo- certainly most of them and the most widely known ones are. I mean, like we have all our lactic acid ferments that would include um. You know, sourdough bread, sauerkraut pickles, uh uh, and many other things. There's also acetic acid ferments, which are you know, vinegars and mm-hmm. kombucha and related things. But there actually are alkaline ferments, like bacteria that rather than producing acidic byproducts, produce alkaline byproducts. Really? So for instance, I have right here natto. So this is a Japanese ferment, and um you know, it's like it's it's giving like a strong camembert kind of a smell uh-huh. um, because camembert also has like some alkaline byproducts um, that give it that like sort of ammonia uh, uh, notes. Oh! Um, but 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 this also creates like a slimy coating on the beans. Uh huh. Um, so can you see any of these like little strings? Yeah, that are developing. Yeah, they're okay. coming through. Yeah. So. So, um, you know, this is um, uh, uh, something that I've really come to love the flavor of. I mean, the first time I tried it, I did not love the flavor of it. But, you know, I, I just like I saw some other people taking such pleasure in it that I, like I, I gave it another try and another. And now it has really become uh, like a regular feature uh, in my kitchen. And, and but this is one that, that sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, produces an alkaline byproduct rather than acidic byproduct.
1: Very interesting because we we, that that would be an acquired taste for most of us who tend to prefer things on the acidic side. Well,
2: I mean, a lot of ferments are you know. I mean, yeah, coffee, which is fermented, is an acquired taste. Beer, which is fermented, is an acquired taste. I mean, a lot of the flavors of ferment. I mean, I, I mean, camembert cheese is an yeah. acquired taste. So, I mean, you know that that's something that's true sort of across
1: cultures so, with ferments. So, staying with the cheese category, so camembert is embraced. The so cheeses that have that white mold coating around it that's an alkaline uh uh micro mi- alkaline forming micro sure and even if you get a white mold
2: growing on your sauerkraut like you know the like the only danger with that is if you let it grow for a long time it can consume some of the acids and make a more alkaline ah. uh, uh, ferment so yeah a lot of the sort of you know white hairy molds will um you know produce a, a, a more alkaline environment
1: well let, well, just I'm kicking in a little bit of uh, baking kitchen baking science. When you get alkaline and acid together in, in a liquid form, they usually they usually neutralize and form carbon dioxide. Is is that kind of one of, what would happen if the, the 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 alkaline mold starts to interact with the acid medium? You no, know,
2: it's it's more that it's consuming lactic acid. I see. Um so it's a, it's not so much a reaction, it's not like you know, baking soda and um, you know, buttermilk. Yeah. It's, it's uh yeah
1: i interesting. interested it's like yeah uh, your mind can just spin off in a million directions with this which I can see because all the different kinds of products that you're fermenting uh, and, and, and the many ways in which you're fermenting them, it's just it can become a, a passion it can become a uh, obsession, um, almost. You know.
2: Let me show you one more kind of, okay. you know, vaguely bread-related one. Okay. Right? So, um, so I'm I'm working on a new book. You know, as long as I'm at home and can't, you know, my life for the last fifteen years has been a ton of traveling. I've I've yeah. taught in like twenty five countries. I've done a lot of international traveling as well as domestic traveling. And obviously, right now I'm not. But I'm writing a book that's like a you know fermentation travelogue book about different things I've seen and learned about. And so I'm doing a lot of like you know trying to refine my processes and like you know get a little bit more nuanced in some of these things but this is um cassava um uh, uh yuca so um, um, in Ecuador, I tried something called uh, a yuca podrida, which translates as basically rotten cassava. Um,
0: yeah. And
2: there's a, a lot of traditions around the world where people ferment their cassava. But ah. uh, this is just like I peeled the cassava, uh, I cut it into chunks, and it's under water. And, uh, I started this two days ago. Um, I changed the water yesterday after we're done with this, I'm going to change the water again. Um, uh, and then after another day or two, uh, I'm going to steam these, mash them up and make a dough to make, uh, like a, like a tortilla de yuca um um so you know sort of a like a like a bread concept a flat bread concept from the fermented yuca except you know yuca has like one of the most like plain neutral flavors yeah. in the world and the yeah. fermentation really like just gives it um you know a, a, like a, an
1: interesting flavor so to, uh, to many of us yuca we think of uh, tapioca as maybe the most common product that comes from the yuca uh, So this is so this what you're doing is almost kind of like what they do with with hominy corn to make to turn corn into tortillas is is the what nixtamal or whatever they call it to to alkalize it and then you're doing it the opposite you're you're acidifying it then by putting it into fermentation Yeah. And, and well by, by, by the way i mean they're, you know the um,
2: um um you know central america and south america actually are full of um you know people taking the nixtamal and then fermenting it so there's a lot of like traditional you know uh, processes where you you know ferment the corn after it undergoes this process of nixtamalization
1: Wow. Well, you know, people uh, in, the, in the the foodie community is always asking the question. Oh, we've seen so much. What's next? Is there something else? You know, I've, worked, I've done this one now. I want to move on to the next thing. And you can also you can see the the future of foods is lies in the past because these traditional techniques are now. Made, you know, you hear about something like this, and you go, I can't wait to try something made from that since I haven't. Be, you know, before and then suddenly it becomes the hot new trendy item, you know, and so uh, I could see something going doing with the yucca, you know, doing that. What is the flavor like then? When, is it just like a bland bread? And is there any salt in that, in that solution that you're, you're, uh, yeah, there's,
2: there's no salt in this solution. Although when I, when I, um, uh, steam it and then mash it up, I'll certainly add some dough. So some, some salt into the dough.
1: Because I heard you say at a recent uh, symposium that, uh, that salt's not really necessary for, to, to uh, ferment the cucumbers or the sauerkraut, it's just more for flavor. It's not because it protects the product well, or what?
2: Well, I mean, um, you know, I, I mean, I would hate to eat the cucumbers fermented without salt personally yeah. because yeah. they would turn into mush because salt slows down those enzymes that I was talking about earlier. So, it's, it's I'm all really kidding. just saying that salt yeah. is not absolutely essential. It's not, it's not, it's not the thing standing between, you know, you and something becoming dangerous to eat. Um, um, but it has a lot of, it has a lot of benefits. Uh, so in this I mean, case, there's even, make- there's even some health gurus out there telling people that they get sort of, uh, you know, better probiotics from their, their their sauerkraut if they don't use any salt. Um, I mean, lactic acid bacteria, which are the primary probiotics uh, uh, in sauerkraut, definitely can tolerate salt. So I, I mean, I, I absolutely disagree with this. But, you know, there are people making salt-free sauerkraut. There was a brand called Rejuvenative Foods out of Santa Cruz, California for decades. That was marketing nationally, salt-free sauerkraut that wasn't very good, but um, <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't making people sick. Um, they sold it uh, on the
1: health claim, yeah. And, uh, and and there there
2: there are some traditions. I mean, I visited a, a town called Kiso in Japan in a remote valley that. Traditionally, didn't have access to 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 a lot of salt, and so um, uh, they they developed a tradition of making a salt-free sauerkraut. in like you know, Nepal um, and the sort of northern Himalayan area, they have traditions of fermenting without salt. But then they dry the vegetables for preservation. Like without salt, it becomes very hard to preserve things for long periods of time. Not that they'll become dangerous, but that they'll That's become right.
1: mushy and unappealing. They'll decompose. But in the case of the yucca, you want to mash it anyway, so it doesn't. You're not trying to keep it crisp, so you don't really need the salt. Enough.
2: And also, I'm only doing this for a few days. Um, uh-huh. You know, I'm not. This isn't a long-term uh, fermentation. One thing, I, okay, but, you know, before before we cut out, I, I, I want to just say that you know people sometimes talk about fermentation as you know a strategy for food preservation, and and it is. it, it can be but not every fermentation is for preservation i mean nobody's ever fermented wheat to preserve it i mean wheat preserves best if you just keep wheat berries or or even flour you know once you add water you know you're 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 beginning a dynamic process and so you know grains and beans are never fermented in order to preserve them they're per, they're fermented for flavor for digestibility for lightness and rising i mean there's a million other reasons that they're enhanced by the fermentation but it's never
1: to preserve them. Well, this I, we could talk i could talk about this all day with you because I would <laughs> never get tired of hearing uh, you know your whistle. but this is we're scratching the surface of this huge category called fermentation uh and the the growing fermento community out there knows you know what you're talking about because they've been following you the art of fermentation an in-depth explanation of essential concepts and processes is the the more recent of your two books, the the original book that came out 17, 18 years ago, Wild Fermentation, The Flavor, Nutrition, and Craft of Live Culture Foods, are the two books that kind of put you on the fermentation map and got you all over the world. And I'm really looking forward to reading your, uh, sounds like this next one's going to be more of a memoir, so to speak, a, tra- a travelogue of your Well, of I, your- I actually have two books coming out.
2: I have one that's actually coming out in October. Oh. It's called Fermentation as Metaphor which is, right. um, you know, not really about how to ferment anything. And it's more, you know, reflections on, you know, how fermentation relates to some larger social processes as well. And, and that's against the backdrop of microscopy that I've been doing. So images right. of, of uh, microorganisms. And then the one that I'm working on right now um, um, is like a fermentation travelogue. So, I mean, it'll, it's got recipes. I mean, my working title yeah. is um, Global Fermentation inspiration. Um, It's very impressionistic. It's just like the things I happen to have stumbled upon and learned about. Um, But uh, I have lots of photos, lots of recipes. I hope that um, people will enjoy that.
1: I'm sure they will. I know publishers, you know, uh, especially when you get a reputation for for owning a category, they want you to stay in that category. They don't want you to break out. and so they always want recipes because if you've used recipes once, then you always have to add recipes. Uh, I've done the same thing with bread bread, I've written about bread as metaphor. that's my that's been my theme, and that's why I love hearing the fermentation as metaphor because we're kind of uh, we' now we're running parallel tracks here, and so the, these worlds will converge. Uh, but every time I try to write a book about, uh, about, uh, metaphor, the, the publisher always says, make sure you put in recipes. We've got to have some people want to, they want to make things from the book as well. So anyway, it's exciting. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and showing us some really cool foods. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll just stay in touch. Hopefully we can get you back as we continue this series of interviews. uh, Uh, when the book comes out, after the book comes out, maybe we can get you back to talk more about specifically, you know, what's in that book. So Sandor Katz, thank you for being uh, on Pizza Talk today. Even though we didn't talk about pizza, we really did. We talked about what what is the foundation of any great pizza, which is the fermented dough underneath it. So thanks so much. And uh, thank you all for joining us on Pizza Talk. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.